Amen. Good morning, everybody. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack right in front of you. Grab it and turn to Joshua chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. Do you know that spring break has begun in Harrisburg? Doesn't feel like spring break, does it? Make the most of it anyway, right? The sun is shining. It's warm in here. It's good, right? Joshua chapter 11 is where we're at. Last week we saw an interesting text where God uh, proved faithful even in the midst of Israel's blunder. If you remember the, the way the whole story went, Israel was kind of tricked by the Gibeonites into making a covenant with them. They shouldn't have done it, but they did. They didn't seek God's wisdom. They didn't seek His direction. They made this covenant, and now they're kind of stuck with it. And if you remember the text last week, the Gibeonites call them and they say, Hey, we're in trouble. We're, we're being attacked. All of the kings in our region have gotten together, and they have come against us. Israelites, come help us. And we saw last week that, that the Israelites do, and that God, through that whole weird scenario, gives Israel victory over the entire southern portion of the Promised Land. By the end of chapter 10, Israel had, um, had conquered all of the southern portion of the Promised Land. So even in the midst of Israel's blunder, God was doing a great work. We talked about how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man go hand in hand in this text. One commentator I, I read on the text this week said, Divine sovereignty does not negate human activity. Rather, it stimulates it. God said, I'm giving them into your hand. I'm giving them into your hand. And Joshua, in response to that statement of God's power and his sovereignty, says, all right, troops, let's go. And they march all night, and they head their way uh, to, to, uh, to Gibeon to defend them. And you're going to see the same thing happens this week. You'll see this great statement of God's sovereignty, and then Joshua's response with the people in responsibility to follow and obey uh, what God was telling them to do. We also talked last week about having faith not only that embraces miracles, but really expects miracles. In other words, if you read chapter 10 of Joshua and about the sun standing still in the sky and your gut reaction is, oh, that couldn't have happened. There's something wrong with your faith. I want us to be the people of, of faith that not only uh, embrace miracles when we hear about them, but we expect them. I heard about a miracle this week. Uh, my brother and, and a group from Dorsville are on their way back from Africa. They, they did some ministry in a place called Mali. And my brother called the other day and was telling us a story about a, a, an eight-year-old girl who had fallen 20 feet out of a tree. Um, and they, they, it was their last night in the village, and the people who were there were, were throwing them a party, basically. They were going to do this dance, and they were going to fix them a meal and say, Oh, thank you for coming to work in our village. Thank you for helping us so much. And in the midst of all this celebration, this guy comes in with his daughter, uh, who, is, who is basically lifeless. I guess about half of her face had been peeled off in this fall, and she landed on her head. And, and my brother and the other doctor that was there, they started working on her and trying to figure out what, what was going to happen. And it was just a really bad picture. In fact, Matt went on to describe that as the night progressed, she got worse and worse and worse. In fact, every sign, every sign that, that we uh, who are involved with uh, Western medicine, my brother and, and others, every sign that would say she's not going to make it, she had one pupil that had blown up and, and her toes wouldn't respond right to the flick of the thing on the bottom of her foot. It was just, it was the time when we would say there's nothing more we can do. And, and, and we would pull the plug on a girl like this. In fact, that's what they had to tell these people in Africa. They said, uh, medically, there's nothing more we can do for this girl, but this is what we'll do. We'll, we'll stay up with her all night and we'll pray. We'll pray for her. 
And the next morning, they decided she was still alive. She was still alive, and so they said, we need to get her out of this little village into a place where she can get some more treatment and at least some IV fluids. And, and again, she's just showing no signs of life. She's not thriving at all. And they put her in this, this truck to take her um, to get the IV fluids, still with one, one pupil that's not, not reacting. And uh, by the time she got from where they were in the truck to the village that has the IV fluid, she was up, walking around, talking. And I think when we hear stories like that, our immediate reaction is, of course, of course that's what's going to happen. And I want you to see that that's a huge door wide open for ministry in that place because they were able to say, as, as, as doctors, they were able to say, there's nothing else we can do, but we will pray. We will pray for this girl. And those people know that God had done that thing there. And he does stuff like that. And you know what's even greater than that? You know what's even more spectacular and amazing than that? He said, he's changed my heart. He forgave me of my sins and, and adopted me as a son. This is incredible. This is miraculous. He's given life to one who's dead in their trespasses and sins. He's forgiven one who is so, so dirty. He's given us hope. And that's a greater miracle than, than any kid falling out of a tree, than, any, than, any, than anything we've seen. That's the greatest miracle, and we need to be ready to embrace those kind of miracles. And the last thing we talked about in Joshua chapter 10 is this picture of God as a warrior. I heard a preacher the other day talking on a similar topic, and he said, God doesn't smell like strawberries. <laughs> so we have this picture of God as a fluffy teddy bear who smells like strawberries, and he doesn't. He smells like sweat and, and blood. He's a warrior, and he fights for us. He fights for us as his children. He defends us, and he protects us. He has, he has fought for us. He's already done the work for us in Christ. He's fought for us, and he's fighting for us now daily, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and he will fight for us one day when he comes back on a white horse with a sword out of his mouth and slays the nations. He's a warrior, and we should fear him and respect him and revere him. This week, we're going to see a very similar scene in, in Joshua chapter 11. We've got the northern kingdom conquered. We're going to conquer the well, we've got the southern kingdom conquered. We're going to conquer the northern kingdom this week. God is going to finally give the people um, uh, the land. They're, they're going to possess it. And what you'll see after chapter 11 is the distribution of the land. But the war is going to cease for the most part at the end of chapter 11. You're going to see some neat stuff uh, this week. And, and it's glorious. And all the glory goes to God for what he has done here and what he's doing in our lives. Look at it. Joshua chapter 11. This is not nearly as long as last week. It says, then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaph, and the kings who were all of the north in the hill country, in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, and the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Himron, the land of Mizpah. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Miram and attacked them. 
The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as great Sidon to Mizraphoth, Mayim, in the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor formerly was head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left to breathe. And he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle and the, that the sons of Israel took as their plunder... But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Look at verse 16. It says, Thus Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, even as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle, in order that they might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, And in Ashdod, some remained. So Joshua took the whole land. Listen to this. According to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their divisions by tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. And the way you work in our lives and through our lives. God, thank you that you have called us not only into relationship with you, but you've called us to be part of your work in the world. What a, glorious, what a glorious truth that is. What a glorious privilege it is to be a part of it. And God, thank you for days like today when we can get together as brothers and sisters and sing your praises and hear from your word. I pray that we do hear, not just with our ears and not with our minds, but with our hearts today, that you would speak to us and change us by your power for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we look at this text today, I think that there are about four sections of the text. The first one has to do with this giant opponent that Israel is facing. If you look at the first couple of verses, there's a lot of names. And, and basically what's happening here is we're getting, we're getting a lay of the land. We're getting a lay of who is going to be involved in this opposition, who is going to be involved in this war. And, and there are some notable names. There are some difficult names to pronounce. You see that all of these people are from the north country. We've already, we've already taken, we've already conquered the south, and now we're headed into the north country. And you'll see that this guy named Jabin, who's king of Hazor, is going to... 
uh, rally the troops. Just like the other guy did in chapter 10 in the southern kingdom, he said, hey, we, we need to all get together. We're not going to be able to fight Israel on our own, but if we all get together and we cooperate, maybe we have a chance. And what you see in chapter 11 is actually more intimidating than what we saw in chapter 10. If you notice in the text, it says that the people were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That is the opposing force. The opposing army was so numerous that they couldn't be counted. We see this language elsewhere in the Old Testament when God talks to Abraham, right? When God talks to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he says, that's the way I'm going to make your descendants. Your, Your people are going to be so big that they won't be able to be numbered. Well, take that and recognize that the army that Israel is about to face is that big. And back in these days, that was the key to victory. Back in, back in military, um, in, in warfare in these days, the key to victory was just to have more than the other guy. Because they were, a lot of them were going to get killed, and they would fight, and, they would, and if you had more than the other guy, the likelihood of you winning was pretty good. And not only did they have more people than Israel, they had more weaponry than, than Israel. If you notice in the text, it said they had a bunch of chariots and horses. Notice verse 4. Verse 4 is the key to the first section. It says, they came out... They and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. It doesn't seem like Israel has any horses and chariots at this point. And and that's going to become a little bit of an interesting topic as we move on in the text today, is these horses and chariots. But what you need to see is that Israel is outmanned. Israel's outgunned. Israel is intimidated, and they should be intimidated by what's going on here. This is the biggest, baddest battle that they have faced to date, and Israel will either stand or fall on this day. What I want you to see is that even in the gathering of these foreign troops, even in the gathering of the opposition, God is doing a great work. God is going to bring all of these northern armies together so that Israel can wipe them out in one fell swoop. They're going to take them out altogether. Even though it seems intimidating, even though it seems like the odds are stacked against them, God is doing his thing. It's going to bring it all together to give them a great victory. And I think one of the applications that we're going to make today is that sometimes our lives seem like this. Seem like verses 1 to 5 when all the opposing forces have gathered and everything is against us and it seems like it's an insurmountable foe. Seems like there's no way we could possibly win this battle. I feel like that sometimes in my life, don't you? When I, when I step back and look, I think, man, there's, there's no way this is going to work. There's no way this is going to come out good. There's no way I win here. And what I want to tell you is that on those days... Be expecting God to do something great. It's, it's in, in those times when God shows up and shows off his power and does something incredible. And that's what he's going to do here in this text. The opposing army is great. But what you need to see in the next section is that God is greater. God is greater. Start in verse 6. It says, Then Joshua, then the Lord said to Joshua, Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. And they've got chariots and horses. But you've got nothing to be afraid of, Joshua. And look what he says. He says, For tomorrow at this time... I will deliver them, all of them, slain before Israel. God says, I'm I'm giving them to you. I I will kill them all. Tomorrow, by this time, they will all be delivered to you slain. And notice what he says next. He says, you shall. Two, well, four words in that verse stand out to me. God says, I will. And then he says, you shall. God has given them confidence, right? Based on his sovereignty and based on his power, he says, this is what I'm going to do. And then he says, this is what you shall do in result of that. This is what you shall do in response to that. I think we need to see that balance in our lives all the time. If you were in adult Sunday school this morning, you saw it, right? You saw it in small group Bible study when God says, I'm the one who's working in you. I'm the one who is enabling you to desire and to do what is right, right? He says, I'm working. I'm doing this great work in you. And then he says what? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, right? 
God says, I will do it, and you shall, in response to my work, follow me and obey me. And that's what we see in this text. He says, I will and you shall. Notice what he says when he says, you shall. And this is strange. He says, tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking that those horses and chariots would be a big asset to Israel as they move forward. God says, I'm going I'm to kill all the people. And I would expect God to say, so then take their chariots and their horses, and you guys use them as you conquer the rest of the land, as you fight more battles. But that's not what God, God says. God says, you're going to have victory over these people. And when you get to the horses and the chariots, hamstring the horses, which basically means cut the Achilles tendon. Cut, uh, cut the tendon on the back foot of them so they might not even be able to stand, but they certainly won't be able to do what they need to do in battle. And then burn the chariots. Why would God say something like that? Well, they might not know how to use them, but more than that, he doesn't want them to come to depend on those things. All throughout this story, it's a story of their dependence on God and his fighting for them. And if they end up with a bunch of chariots and horses, they might come to trust those chariots and horses. They might come to trust and depend on those chariots and horses and not on the Lord their God. Turn to Psalm, Turn to Psalm uh, number 20. And you'll see this spelled out pretty clearly. Psalm number 20. We'll start in verse 6. It says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. God's doing that in Joshua, right? He's answering them from heaven with power in his right hand. And then in verse 7 it says, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Whoa. We don't need chariots and horses. We've got Yahweh, right? And I think as I look at this in my own life, I, I tend to want to gather chariots and horses up. As, as I go through this life, I, if I see a chariot or see a horse, I say, I, I, want, I want that. I want that because that's going to help me. That's going to help me in battle. And sometimes I, I gather so many chariots and so many horses around me that I forget that it's God that I really need. Do you guys do the same thing? I, I wrote in my notes that I, that I believe Israel has every reason to be confident as they move forward in this battle. But they have no reason to be confident in themselves as they move forward in this battle. And I think that's the way we need to live our lives. That we need to know that we have every reason to be confident as we move forward in life, knowing that God is with us, if He's with us, right? If He's with you, you have every reason to be confident. And the way you know that He is with you is you have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, right? If, if He is with you, you have every reason to be confident, but you better be careful not to be confident in yourself. If He is with you, you have every reason to boast, but you better make sure that you only boast in the cross. There is, every time I become self-confident, every time I become puffed up and arrogant, I fall. Every time I am weak and depend on Him for strength, oh man, it's a good day. It's a good day when it goes like that. Israel hamstrings the chariots, hamstrings the horses and burns the chariots. They are obedient to God and they are delivered. They are delivered. Notice how the story goes in verse 8. It says, The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Sidon to Misperoth, Mayim, and to Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left. And the key to it all is verse 9. 
you're going to see this develop in the next section. It says, Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. The key to this victory, the key to the whole victory of the promised land, is, is obedience to God's commands, right? It's obedience. When, when they're obedient, it goes well. When they're disobedient, it's trouble. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. How difficult you think that was as all of his soldiers stood around? You're going to do what? To the, really, the horses? We could use those horses. You're going you're gonna to burn those chariots? We could use those. And he says, this is what God said. And they trust God, and he obeys God. So the first thing we see in this text is a giant opponent. Second thing we see in this text is a bigger God. Third thing we see develop in this text starts in verse 10, and it's a Moses-like leader. There's, there's a strange shift that happens in verse 9, and all of a sudden Joshua begins to get a little bit of attention in the text. And all of the attention that he gets is about his obedience. And what you're going to see happen in this text, which is a theme really throughout the book, is that Joshua is taking Moses' place as the leader. We, we've seen that from a very practical standpoint. Moses is dead, right? Somebody's got to lead. But, but Joshua hasn't yet attained the same status as Moses. He hasn't yet earned the trust of the people. He hasn't yet displayed some of the qualities that, that Moses had displayed. But here in the text, he steps into that role pretty fully. In fact, three times in the text it says that he was like Moses. He did like Moses. He was like Moses. So Joshua now is going to step into that position of leadership and follow after Moses. And all of the, all of the story is about his obedience. Joshua was obedient. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, Joshua turned back at that time, captured Hazor, which by the way is no small feat. It's interesting how this text develops. It says, he captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword. Like, no big deal. No big deal. He beat Hazor. Oh, it's a huge deal. Hazor was the strongest place in the promised land. They had the strongest king. This was the biggest battle they had fought. And the text just says, hey, he captured Hazor. And that's the way our lives should go, right? That's exactly the way our lives should go. When we hear, when we hear about this little girl in Africa, we could say, oh, of course. <laughs> what would you expect? What would you expect to happen? We expect God to show up and show off his power and be strong because he is strong. It says, They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them, and there was no one left who breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them. Now listen to this. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Catch that? Joshua and Moses. Joshua is obedient to Moses. Notice what it says in verse 15. It says, just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. Joshua's taking the place. He is the leader now. He is the one who is going to lead the people of God. He's already leading them, but now he's stepping in to a spotlight that he shares with Moses. And it says, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded to Moses. There is full obedience here in Joshua's life. And what I want you to hear is that that is the mark of great leadership. That is the mark of great godliness. It is all about obedience. It's not about talent. It's not about persuasion. It's about obedience. We'll take godliness and obedience any day, right? What I want you to see also is that Jesus is the ultimate example of this leader who is obedient. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. You saw this last week in, in small group Bible study. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of Christ's obedience... That if, if Joshua is a leader, and he's a leader because of his obedience, then Joshua is a small picture of Jesus, who is the ultimate leader, right? Who is ultimately obedient, right? In fact, Joshua and Jesus, it's the same name. 
So Joshua is kind of, kind of paving the way and setting the stage for Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of what Joshua is doing. Look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Let's start in verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8 is the key. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see the obedience there? That he was obedient. That Jesus was the example of obedience. That he was obedient even to death, even to death on a cross, and because of that was exalted to the place, uh, the place of, of highest exaltation. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. You see another example of Christ's obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 7. I hope, I hope you understand what we're trying to do here. We don't, we don't ever want to stop with Joshua. When, when we study about Joshua and we talk about obedience and when we talk about the, the, the taking of the promised land, we don't ever want to stop there. That's not the whole story. All of that is a picture of what is to come. We always want to get, we always want to, get to Jesus. Look at chapter 5, verse 7 of Hebrews. It says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears, to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Listen to verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You catch that? The author of Hebrews there talks about Jesus' obedience. Right, Him being obedient even to death. And then he says that he is the source of eternal salvation for those who are obedient to him. Right, For those who obey him. We want always to get to Jesus as we study in Joshua. Joshua is a Moses-like leader because of his obedience. And Jesus is the greatest example of that kind of obedience. So we've got a giant opponent. We've got a bigger God. We've got a Moses-like leader. And then the last text is that the land is conquered. Look at verse 16. In verse 16 it says, Then Joshua took all that land. Now skip down to verse 23. And notice that in verse 23 it says, So Joshua took the whole land. That's what we call in Bible study bookends. Bookends. It's the same phrase at the beginning at the, at the end. This is one section of the text that is making the point that what? What's the point? What's the point of all that happens in between there? They took the land. How much of the land? All the land. At the end of verse 11, they have conquered the entire promised land. That's a good thing, right? It is a very, very good thing that God has ultimately given the victory. Joshua has taken all of the land. But look in verse 18. Verse 18 is so important as we study this. Right in the middle of it, it says, Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. As we read through chapter 10 and chapter 11, it took us two weeks. Right? It took us two weeks to read through all this, and we've conquered the whole promised land. What you need to understand it is, is it's very condensed. It's very condensed, and it took a long time. Some scholars would say that even just the northern kingdom, this thing that we've looked at in chapter 11, took seven years. 
seven years to do that. Seems like it happens overnight to us, but it was a long time in battle. It was wearying, and it was tiring, and sometimes that's the way it goes with us, right? Sometimes God gives us victory, but it happens very slowly. Sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes it's wearying. Sometimes it's bloody. Sometimes it's dirty, and we need to be patient. We need to be patient, and we need to be obedient to him every step of the way. We would like him to deliver us overnight, right? We would like him to take care of all of our problems, to wake up tomorrow with no aches and pains. That's what you want, right? Might not be what he gives you. You might deal with aches and pains for years and years and years, but I promise you this, if you know him, one day you'll wake up with no aches and pains. If you know him, one day there will be no, no more trouble, no more sorrow, no more pain. For eternity, no more trouble if you know him. We expect him to deliver instantly, and sometimes he delivers slowly, but he will deliver his people. Verse 20 is pretty difficult. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. It says, For it was the Lord, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Some of the language there is very similar to some of what we see in Exodus with Pharaoh. And we know that in Exodus with Pharaoh that God is hardening his heart and that Pharaoh is hardening his heart so that the glory of God can be on display through the plagues and through the deliverance. And it's a very similar thing that's going on here. These people definitely, and, and Pharaoh as well, are accountable for their sin. They are culpable for their sin. They are responsible for what they are doing. But God is at the same time working his grand plan and displaying his majesty and his glory even through the hardening of their hearts. Does that make sense? That what you need to see in verse 20 is that God is above it all, and he's working it all for his glory. As he destroys the peoples, peoples of this land, his glory is on display, is it not? They shouldn't, Israel should not have been able to defeat these folks, but they did because of God and his glory and his greatness and his power. That's what you need to know in verse 20. And then the best part of the whole thing is in verse 23. Wrapping up this whole section on the conquest of the land, it says, So Joshua took the whole land. According to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions. It's a big word, inheritance, isn't it? That's a big word. And when we read that word in the Old Testament, we shouldn't stop there and say, oh, yeah, God gave them this physical land as an inheritance. When I think of inheritance, I'm thinking of something bigger than the promised land, aren't you? When I think about inheritance, I think of it in New Testament terms and think of the glory that God is giving us through Jesus Christ, right? Turn to... We'll see it. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. God in his word talks about this inheritance. It's a big word. It's a big deal. I want you to hear about the inheritance that is available for those who know Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is good news. You should be excited about this. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what waits for you, right? 
an inheritance, not like the promised land that is perishable, not like the promised land that is defiled. You've got an inheritance waiting for you that is imperishable and undefiled in heaven. That's what you've got because of Jesus Christ, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected. Listen to that. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only do you have an inheritance waiting for you, you've got protection now. Okay, we'll move on. The other big word at the end of this is rest. He says, Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by tribes, and thus the land had rest from war. That word rest in Joshua is a big word, and again, we cannot stop in Joshua. We've got to leap forward to the rest that awaits the people of God. Turn to Hebrews. It's Bible drill day. Don't stop. Don't give up now. This is the best. Hebrews chapter 3. Rest is a highly charged word, highly significant word, and there is rest for us. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12, says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Read that again. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Catch what he says there? He says, God said, I've got rest for you. And then he said, you won't get it because of your unbelief, because of your disobedience. There was not rest for them. And then it goes on. It says, Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They heard the good news, but they didn't tie it to faith, and so it didn't profit them at all. For For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, listen to this, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time as has just been said before, today, if you hear his voice, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are opened and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Catch what's going on there? You hear the plea in the author of Hebrews' voice? He says, oh, if you hear it today, don't harden your hearts. Don't be disobedient like they were because of their hardness and because of their disobedience and because of their unbelief. They didn't enter the rest, but there remains a rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Don't fail to enter that rest because of your disobedience, because of your unbelief, but rather believe and obey and enter the rest. And you know what? The rest that we enjoy is not just a rest that is to come. It is a rest here and now where we rely not on our own labors, not on our own effort, but we trust simply in the effort and the labor of Christ on the cross and His resurrection, and we trust that. He did the work so that we could rest, so that we could trust Him and believe Him. And not only do we enjoy that rest now, but we certainly enjoy the fulfillment of that rest to come, right? I did a funeral yesterday of a guy who's there. It's over. This toil, this work, This effort on this earth is over for him, and he enjoys fully the rest of God, the Sabbath rest that waits for the people of God. I hope that you will enter that rest by faith, by faith in Christ. I hope that you will enter that rest. Three applications a day, and then we're done. Number one, are you facing an insurmountable foe? Probably you are. And if you are, you should be excited, because that's exactly when God likes to show up. Don't be discouraged when the army that you face is as numerous as the sand on the sea, and when they have chariots and horses, don't be afraid, be excited, because that's when God shows up and shows off his power. Be looking for that and trust his deliverance. Number two, the question is, who do you trust? In whom do you trust? And what do you trust? Chariots and horses? Are you all about gathering these tools, these weapons, these resources and trusting in money and houses and, 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 and insurance and jobs? Are you all about trusting in those things or are you simply trusting in Him? Are you satisfied in Him? Where does your trust lie? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And then the last application is this. You need to be patiently obedient to Him. Sometimes the battle lasts a long time and it's bloody and it's gory and it's tiring. Even when he said, I'll give it to you, I'll give you the victory, sometimes it takes a long time to get there. And all the while, we should be obedient. We should be patient and obedient. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for the way you work in the face of mighty foes. God, we do face giant opponents in this life, but you are bigger. And we thank you for that. And God, we thank you for the inheritance that is ours by grace through faith in Christ, an inheritance that is eternal and incorruptible, an inheritance that not only we look forward to, but we enjoy even now. I thank you for your grace, and I pray that many in this place know it. 
And that for those who don't, that you make it known to them today. That you change their lives by your power. And God, we thank you for rest. Not just in the promised land and not just from war. But we thank you for rest that you give us in Christ who has worked for us. Who has done the work for us that we might rest. God, I pray that we won't fall short of entering that rest because of disobedience and because of unbelief. But we will believe and obey. That we will believe and obey and enter that rest for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.